continuing where we left off two evenings ago. If you recall, in the classical way of practicing, over a period of time, you would be working with the breath on the body, the breath on feelings, the breath and the mind, and then the breath and discernment. Another way of putting this is that this uh, set of 16 contemplations or lessons, sometimes referred to as lessons about the nature of things, provides us with an opportunity to become familiar with, more sensitive to the body, more sensitive to feelings, more familiar with the different mind states that we have. And the term intimacy is one that uh, I find very helpful. We're learning how to be intimate with the mind and the body, the the mind-body process. A very great Japanese teacher named Dogen was once asked, uh, what is the the awakened mind? And he said, the mind that is intimate with all things. So that would include everything. And I think there was some hint at what that meant, how we're using intimacy. But let me give you a few examples, some of them very, very homely, ordinary, uh, but the principle is really the same. And I think it's essential that you understand it because when we move to um, discernment, when we move to the the practice of understanding, it will be necessary to see if wisdom is possible, with, if intimacy is possible with some of the states that uh, are so problematic for us. Start with a, a simple example. You're uh, taking a walk in the woods. And let's say you see a, a beautiful tree or a tree that you're attracted to or a beautiful flower or maybe an animal is stopped and looks very cute and you're looking at it or a bird. You can use breathing, just stop, be with a few breaths, uh, depending on how continuous the breath awareness is for you. How long you've been practicing is another aspect of it. Uh, What can happen is the mind can quiet down. And it can even get quiet to the point where there's no thinking. And so then... When you look at that tree, when you look at that plant, when you look at that uh, animal or bird, there's nothing between you and and the creature or the plant. There's no separation. You're intimate with it. If in a moment the mind starts uh, naming it, uh, seeing how it reminds you of uh, trees that you saw somewhere else, how it's more attractive than the trees Uh, an X, but not as attractive as the trees and Y. And before you know it, you're still looking at the tree. But uh, if you have knowledge of botany and so forth, before you know it, you're, without realizing it, you're separated from the tree, typically by thinking. So we humans, very often, while we're doing things, we're also thinking about it. Or we're thinking about something else. So that intimacy would be you notice that you're being separated by thought. And very often, as you get the hang of it, you begin to, as you see that, the thoughts fall away or they thin out. And then your much, your contact with nature is much more immediate. Of course, as you know, it can be tremendously dramatic. A fair number of enlightenment experiences happen in nature. 
because the mind is uh, extremely innocent, very sensitive, you could say vulnerable. And as a result, the, the power of the impression um, has an effect. And we, call, we can call that intimacy. Another one, even more homely, uh, something I learned a number of months ago. Whenever I wash the dishes, I whistle, let's say at home or, or at someone's home. I never whistle any other time. And I've been doing this for years. And finally, I started to wonder, why is it that I only whistle when I'm washing the dishes? And the songs, of course, are there way before the Beatles. And, you know, they're really old songs. Some are very old commercials. One for Ajax. I don't even know if the product. (laughs) So, uh, the job of the Vipassana yogis to investigate. So I I looked into it, and uh, it wasn't too difficult to find. What what it turned out was that uh, when I was growing up, my sister and I divided washing the dishes. Uh, She'd do it one night, I'd do it the next night, and we were brought up to never complain. We would just do it. This, there was a different time period. <laughs> now it's the age of entitlement and you're, you know, anything goes. Okay. Uh, but I didn't particularly like washing the dishes, to put it mildly. And the way I got through it was by whistling. And so I could whistle my way through the dishes. And then it'd be over, and they'd be reasonably clean, and I could do what I really wanted to do. Okay. And so it's still carried over. Now, uh, years of all this stuff and uh, dishes are not a problem, I don't think, for me anymore. I mean, I just wash the dishes. But this was still there. And I noticed that it had somewhat the same function. That is, as I was washing the dishes, as soon as I start, the whistling would start, and it would separate me from the dishes to some degree. It was subtle, but it was there. So I stopped whistling, experimented with that. There was a little bit of uneasiness in just washing the dishes. (laughs) (laughs) Then finally, it became fine. You know, it was okay to wash the dishes without whistling. At that point, it was okay to start whistling again. But it's different. This time, the whistling is sort of like background music, but you're really attending to the dishes. Before, it was something between me and the dishes, some uh, conditioned and very deeply conditioned way of, to some degree, avoiding it. Uh, Another experience that will convey some of the sense of, um, of intimacy And this one has relevance for today. Uh, Every summer, as far back as I can remember, when Corrado and I teach this retreat, I teach the same koan. Um, So you've heard this, many of you, if you've been coming for a while, you've heard this koan. uh, Because it's appropriate and it's helped me tremendously. Uh, Over the years, I've worked with this koan a lot. I've gone through it, I don't know, hundreds of times. The koan is a, uh, a monk comes, goes to the teacher and says, uh, because in, uh, in Asia, uh, especially in ancient times, the monasteries were very hot in the summer and very cold in the winter. There was, it wasn't as comfortable as things are now. Sort of. <laughs> yeah. uh, and he said, how can you practice when it's very hot and when it's very cold? So the teacher says, go to that place where there is no hot and there is no cold. So the student said, where is that? Where is there a place where there is no hot and there is no cold? So the teacher said, hot Buddha, cold Buddha. Now, if you didn't get it, it's all right. You're not supposed to. That's the whole point of these koans. You have to struggle with them. Um, I'll just explain it. That's usually not the way it's done. 
Okay. By the time you answer, it would be winter, and then we have the other side of it, the cold side. Um, it's uh, to, to give you some help with it, uh, some of the commentary over the years uh, to help amplify this meaning, hot Buddha, cold Buddha, uh, is a statement, um, don't make hot, don't make cold. Hot kills, cold kills, don't make anything. Okay. Now what is being talked about here is uh, we're back to our old friend proliferation and concepts. Concepts and proliferation, as, they, as you know, they play with each other. Uh, if you make hot, why that will kill is because all that's happening is that the temperature is a certain degrees. Literally, that's what's happening. Uh, beads of sweat are pouring down your face, etc. When the mind makes hot, hot is not a neutral word, and then there's a reaction to it. And to some degree, we're struggling with it. We don't like it. We wish it would come to an end. Two days ago, it was much cooler. When is it going to end? Fortunately, we don't have, uh, to make things worse, any weather forecasts, weather reports, you know, to listen into and to ask each other about. Uh, listen to the weather forecast sometimes. I mean, the, uh, it's amazing how, what a melodrama it's become. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, if it's going to rain, it sounds like World War III has been declared. Okay. So all that's happening is that it's hot. All that's happening is that it's cold. But if you make hot, then you have hot. If you make cold, then you have cold. So the teacher says, don't make anything. If you make hot, it kills you. If you make cold, it kills you. That's the place where there's no hot or no cold. Now, hot Buddha, cold Buddha, and this is very important. It kind of cuts through certain, I think, somewhat romanticized views of what practice is supposed to lead to. What it's saying is, if it's a hot day like this and the Buddha is sitting, uh, the Buddha is sweating. Hot Buddha, during the, the, the summer, the Buddha sits and sweats. And during the cold, the Buddha sits and shivers. Of course. I mean, he's like uh, he's a human being. You know, sometimes he feels, that, well, if he's attain, attained enlightenment, then he should just not even be hot or cold. But that isn't too realistic, do you think? I mean, it's still a body. The difference is total intimacy with what is. There's no struggle. There's no separation from it. There's complete opening up to the fact of hot, complete opening up to the fact of cold. That's really good practice. It, that means that although the body may be very uncomfortable, the mind can be joyous. Now that comes out of practice, and that, uh, that's another example of intimacy. Okay. Um, When it comes to people, you know, when we relate to each other, uh, one very common way that we are not intimate with each other, no matter how long we've known one another or how much time we've spent with, an, with one another, is uh, the aspect of relationship where we build images. It seems that the human mind is a kind of image-building factory. And it constantly creates images. First, we create images of ourself. And we also create images of the other person. And they do the same to us. So from a certain point of view, there can be warmth and friendliness and all kinds of nice exchanges, but we're perhaps not really seeing each other. We're perhaps not really touching each other because we already know who the other person is. Oh, that's old Larry. We know, you know, he's uh, blah, blah, blah. You probably think that, those of you who have been here for 10 years. <laughs> probably right. Uh, so the image is a subtle uh, wall between us and us, between us. Practice is seeing through that. That is, uh, that's what we call selfing, that we, we create a notion about ourselves that's very, very convincing. 
and a huge amount of suffering comes about uh, because of these very cherished images that we construct with tremendous effort and time and so forth. The process of liberation of self-knowledge is inescapably accompanied by a certain amount of upset, disorientation, and even pain because all of these images get shattered or there's more work to, go, to do. This is not about getting a good self-image on the way, perhaps, but that's another, it's a, a prison. The ancients referred to it as a, a beautifully decorated prison with golden bars, but it's still prison. So a, a very big part of letting go is letting go of attachment to any of these notions, whether they're through words or pictures. If you let go of that, then things are fresh again. Then we're uh, right there with each other. Granted, it's a practice because the mind's tendency, it's not weird, it's normal. The mind's tendency is to, uh, things become familiar. And then uh, without our realizing it, it come, the images come between us and what it is we're talking about. And the freshness is gone. It could be the street you live on. It could be your car. It could be anything. We do that same thing. It's a kind of obstinate familiarity. Practice is cutting through that. Okay, that's probably enough of all this intimacy stuff for, to, to help us uh, understand uh, un understanding. So the sutra has gone, would have gone through 12 of these contemplations all of them having to do with the mind-body process. If you'd practice this way, roughly, and it's just a scheme. It's a scheme, an exposition. No scheme fully can cap uh, capture life. Life is much bigger and uh, can't be fully managed by any of these schemes, but it's a useful scheme. It's one of many. We then get to the, the last four of these 16 lessons or contemplations. Uh, I didn't say too much about the last time. and that had, Then we move into Vipassana. We're up to 13. We've gone through 12. But those 12 are all about uh, uh, the body, feelings, and mind. 13 says, breathing in, the yogi sees the impermanence of all formations. Breathing out, the yogi sees the impermanence of all formations. The practice now, if you were practicing this classical way, could be you go back to the very beginning and you examine everything that you've done. You've already come through 12 contemplations and you begin to see that each and every one of them is impermanent. Each and every one of them arises and passes away. The breath keeps changing. That's the one we started with. Bodily conditions never stay the same. Feelings are constantly changing. from moment to moment. And certainly when we get to the mind, uh, moods come and go, likes and dislikes come and go, we're happy, we're sad. Uh, I don't have to spell it out. You've, you've been here. You know how, uh, how much change you go through. So the practice of 13 is to contemplate the impermanence of everything that you've gotten to know more intimately prior to this. You're beginning to, now you can be with uh, the body much more easily. You've had practice. You've spent some time with your own body. You can be with feelings. You've started to get closer to feelings, some of which are uncomfortable. But now you've learned that it's manageable. You can learn how to get up closer to a feeling and, and observe it. The same with mind states. They start becoming familiar to you. Perhaps less highly charged, less frightening. Oh, that one again. And, you know, we make lots of jokes. Our story keeps telling, its, telling itself over and over and over again. And now, when we move into Vipassana, it's, we have a much better chance of going more deeply into the mind-body process, which we are now more at home with. And we begin to see that everything that arises passes away. That's the law of impermanence said by the Buddha to be universal. Probably everyone in this room agrees with that, but that doesn't free us. We have to really see this law at work in our own mind and body firsthand over a period of time 
with increasing depth and continuity. That's what, is, that's what helps liberate us. As we begin to see that everything that arises passes away, we also see that, that it lacks self. No notion that you have about yourself, no mood that you're in lasts. It's a slightly different way of, uh, it's a, a way of seeing some of the implications of impermanence. You begin to see that, for example, you don't own your own mind. It's a, an impersonal process. The thoughts, fantasies, images, all of it just starts coming from somewhere, like secretions. They just start pouring out. And it's all uncertain. We don't know what's next. Ajahn Chah, who uh, a very great Thai forest teacher who led a, uh, a very memorable retreat here many years ago in the early years of IMS, he would over and over and over again remind people to reflect on the fact that everything's uncertain. Something that would happen would be a surprise and say, I guess things are uncertain, aren't they? <laughs> and I've taken that up as a practice for, as I would say, almost 20 years now. It's invaluable because... Uh, as you get more comfortable with that idea, it uh, makes, li- makes living a little bit easier. Uh, you'll see where this is imp- very, very important when we get to choiceless awareness. Okay, so um, we begin to not only get to see the nature of the, the mind and the body, but we start seeing very deeply into it, and we see its lack of solidity. We see that there isn't an enduring core. In other terms, it's empty. We see that the mind and body is empty. Not that it's not there, but it's not there in the way in which we think it is. We impute a kind of solidity. Sometimes it's as if it's eternal. Forever. Certain states like fear, when they're there, they seem like they're forever, and it certainly seems like a self, and it seems permanent. But we begin uh, to see that that's not so. As we look more carefully, we are, and we're more able to do that now, our samadhi has developed. We've had much more experience with all the variety of mind states that come and go. And we see that, there, that everything that turns up uh, has a cloud-like nature. When you look closely, as solid as it may appear at first, when you look carefully, it's like a cloud in that it's ephemeral. It comes together. It operates for a while and then starts to disintegrate and then it breaks apart and then it's gone. We're doing insight work now. And all the different notions about who we are, who we used to be, who we will be, we see them as fleeting thoughts. As you, the law of impermanence, as that lesson starts to um, impress itself upon us, This, uh, the, the letting go process is dramatically helped. This is also part of this last, this is discernment. In this last aspect of the sutra, what the Buddha is suggesting is that we breathe with discernment. That is, as we become aware of something while breathing in and breathing out, we begin to see its impermanent nature. We begin to see it's, that it's coreless, that it lacks an enduring, an, there is no enduring identity that a self in the way in which we think it is unfindable. It just isn't there. It's a bit like a hallucination. But you can only, uh, we have to test that firsthand. Believing in it won't free you. It just then it becomes another ideology or another comforting belief. I'm a Buddhist now. I believe in emptiness. (laughs) And I have a lot of company. I fit in and the Sangha and all of that. That doesn't free you. You have to see it uh, firsthand in your own psyche. You've got to see what this, all this personal identity is really about. And only each one of us must do it for ourselves. Okay, as we see the law of impermanence at work over and over again, the letting go becomes much easier. Because, put another way, uh, it's an act of intelligence to not attach to something that's going to change. Or put another way, it's an act of a lack of intelligence 
uh, when we grasp onto things that we see change over and over again, and then we suffer immensely. Wisdom is more and more being in tune with the way things are. Suffering comes about when we're out of step. We're not living in the world as it, as it is. This is not sentimental. It's a, a direct perception, and it's a lesson that must be learned, and it has to learn, be learned deeply. Just learning it intellectually is not enough. It's got to go right into the heart. It's got to be uh, with your whole mind and body. And it's not simply a matter of time, that is, seeing it over and over and over again, uh, because in one sitting or in one moment, when the mind is extremely sensitive, it can grasp the impact of this law, the significance of this law, and can change your life. It's not just quantitative. The quality of the perception has everything to do with the depth of the learning and understanding. The state of the mind, of course, contributes to that. If the mind is steady, it's a huge help. That's why we spend time trying to calm and concentrate the mind to give it a, a really solid foundation so that the looking can be real looking. The listening can be real listening. Okay, so uh, the letting go starts happening because we start to learn that everything that arises passes away. Uh, it's that way. And we're able to be with things while more. We're more able to be with things while they're there, even enjoy them and appreciate them, perhaps even more. And then when they leave, we're more able to let them go. Like enjoying a flower during those days when it's alive. And then when it wilts and dies, we let it go. We've learned to do that with beauty and the flower. We don't, well, I'm never going to get a flower because they just go and die on you. <laughs> or you could get plastic flowers, but it's not too fulfilling. <laughs> so most of us, I think, learn that we appreciate the beauty that we have with a flower even though it's not forever, maybe because it's not forever. So the letting go starts to happen, and as the letting go picks up, what is called cessation happens. Uh, cessation is like the falling away of attachment, particularly attachment to greed, hatred, and delusion. It grows out of the practice, and what is called, whatever you want to call it, nirvana. There's a, in the, the 16th contemplation, the final one, and then uh, we'll finish this kind of classical way of looking at it, has a rather, to me, a beautiful and unusual way of, of putting it in the translation that I favor. In the 16th, uh, the letting go is so um, complete, so accomplished, uh, that what they say is that you are giving back to nature what you have falsely appropriated from it. That's one image. One image is used. It's like we have been a thief all our life. We've been appropriating all these things as being me or mine. This is my possession. Conventionally, yes. Legally, yes. But in a profound way, we don't own anything. Not a thing. And so the giving back is simply the false ownership dissolves and we're left with just the pure immersion in life, real intimacy. When it's deep enough, it's called enlightenment. But we have momentary cessations where we're given a glimpse of this. There's a momentary uh, sense of freedom and the letting go and a contentment with the way things are. And so... Uh, the breath is a thread that runs throughout all of this. We learn how to breathe in and breathe out and to finally give it all back. Another image that's used for it is to put the burden down, lay the burden down. The burden, of course, is us. The burden is the ego, putting that down finally. Um, whoops. In choiceless awareness, which, as I mentioned, is the condensed method, we only need two steps. One is get calm and get concentrated, and then just sit in this openness that we've been talking about for a number of days now. As you learn to sit in this openness with no agenda, choiceless in the sense of 
uh, you're not committed to anything being there in particular and choiceless in the sense of not being for or against what turns up. What happens is all of those lessons, uh, all those steps, one through twelve, they all come to you. The whole mind-body process is there. And to some degree, it will even naturally follow the sequence. By and large, we're not able to give close attention to the mind early on in the practice or even feelings. We're much more at home with the body. And we're encouraged to do more of that. As the practice matures and ripens, we find it easier to be with feelings and easier to be with the mind states that come and go. But now, we don't have to go from one through moving in a progression, but rather we just sit and breathe. And the whole art here is to do nothing. And we run into a problem because we're all, uh, we're trying to get somewhere. And the power of this method is to relax and do nothing. It's to allow life to come to you, to have faith that it will. Whatever is, that there won't be a shortage of things to do. That we learn how to sit and how to just be with what is. And as you know, through humor and other ways, we uh, try to undercut when the mind gets ambitious, when it starts striving. And mainly we see that we suffer when that happens. So how can we learn to just sit to just be content with this moment being exactly this way. Uh, there are different uh, approaches. One a humorous one that has always impressed me and I uh, continue to get, uh, not only uh, is it, do I find it humorous, but it can be easily misunderstood, but it conveys the heart of it. Uh, there was a, a Japanese Zen master named Sawaki Roshi who had an unusual way of trying to undercut people's striving and ambition. I'll give you a few examples. One, uh, what turned out to be his main disciple, Uchiyama Roshi, when he was a young monk and they were walking along the monastery ground, said apparently Sawaki Roshi was a very powerful, imposing, a confident, energetic person. And Uchiyama Roshi was a, sh a shy, uh, frightened person. And he said, if I practice... Uh, long and hard the way you, do, you did, will I also become confident and strong? And Suwaki Roshi said, nope. He said, meditation didn't help me at all. I was born this way. Just totally shot that out from under him. Another time, he was asked, what it, would you like to leave something behind? Let's say when, uh, a memorial and with something to be said about you. And he said, not particularly, but if there is anything to be said, okay. Let it be said that here is Sawaki Roshi, wasted his entire life on the cushion. <laughs> and here's the most confusing one of all. When he was asked about what is the value or the use of this uh, sitting and meditation stuff, and he said... Um, it's absolutely worthless. He said, but if you don't do this worthless thing wholeheartedly, you better watch out because your life may be worthless. So you see, it's a subtle edge we're playing. This is not for lazy people. It's not siesta time. And yet you keep all hearing all this language about allowing and so forth. Uh, the art that we're learning is to be right where everything is. I may have to ask permission to take a few more minutes from Corrado. Is that okay? No. <laughs> he was spaced out. <laughs> Actually, uh, I don't like to do that. I like to stick to the schedule. Uh, but there, I, a number of you have asked about uh, to comment a bit on many of you on fear and some of you on uh, loneliness. I think you'll be a little bit disappointed in what I have to say about it, but I do want to get to it. Uh, in choiceless awareness, then, the whole art is to learn how to uh, give up all this striving and to sit in a very sensitive way. Uh, one uh, Chinese teacher put it, of all the 16 practices, the practice of the baby is the best one. What does that mean, the baby's practice? Uh, no preconceptions. 
you just the baby just has no ideas or notions about what's going to lead to what just has fun just lives you know just sit there just sit there on your cushion and just be with what's there that's all that's the whole instruction it's finally what it ripens into okay so the the qualities that are called for uh in this choiceless awareness uh are very different from what is encouraged during daily life for us or in the world uh, because these qualities can be developed for daily life as well the kind of sitting uh the attitude towards what turns up first of all um if this law of impermanence which implies uncertainty is really true it's very helpful if you understand that when you sit that what is going to happen while you sit is uncertain the sitting practice is subject to the law of uncertainty and to as we sit there we literally do not know what's going to come if you can get comfortable with that that you don't know what when you sit down no matter what your previous sitting was like oh, i had a good sitting i had a bad sitting fine that's ancient history you don't know what's going to happen in this sitting okay so how to learn to do that uh for it to be okay for the sitting to be just the way it is a certain kind of contentment okay so you're sitting there the kind of mind that gets developed from this as you have no agenda you give up little by little we don't give up without a fight all the calculations all the schemes all the projects all the things that we're going to solve the problems we're going to work through so when we go back we'll be done with it all these notions we have about what we're going to accomplish when we sit little by little first of all we suffer a lot when we get so goal directed and little by little the suffering itself helps us let go and then constantly uh, you know we remind you just sit just be with it and so forth the quality of uh, qualities of mind that are so useful are qualities like innocence qualities like naivete those are not minds that are valued in the world outside those are people who get taken advantage of if you're naive or innocent it's a freshness that's being talked about uh it's the opposite of the mind that knows everything so this innocent mind the naive mind is very similar identical to what you've heard when you hear don't know mind beginner's mind they're trying to get at the same thing it's a certain humility can you approach each sitting with that humility and you'll see what i mean when we come to fear and loneliness and of course by extension everything else uh so these are qualities of mind it's a radical reeducation because we are pretentious nothing personal me too and presumptuous and uh we're constantly on the march trying to use this to get something that's better whereas the practice is to, that everything is a means and an end in itself and it is that that uh surrender to the way it is that has the dynamic power that moves us somewhere it's not an exercise in helplessness or passivity or fatalism not at all but in order to do it you have to learn to be with whatever visits you okay let's uh let's move on you can see it then in the choiceless awareness you're accomplishing what you could have accomplished with the classical method because as you sit and breathe whatever is in you is going to turn up at least a lot of it will some of it will because to just sit quietly and breathe is an invitation to to for whatever is there to come out it's just saying it's okay come on out i'm just sitting here and i keep, and they want me to be open so i'm trying to be open you know with each breath opening to opening myself to the way it is that's what i hear that is that's important around here and i'm really trying to learn how to do that and then that whole gang down there in the unconscious uh they're delighted and some of them start coming up <laughs> they've been in a dungeon for a long time because they didn't realize it was going to be this hot but anyway <laughs> yeah. so here's the uh in the time that we have left because 
I'm not going to give you a formula as to how to work with fear or how to work with loneliness. That would be more of the same. I can give you a few hints. But what makes the difference is your willing to, willingness to observe and to learn. But there are a few hints. There, we're, we're not, uh, there are people who've come before us who've done this. It's very difficult to face yourself. Uh, the unwillingness to get to know yourself is common among human beings. I would say everyone who's here uh, is beyond that. We're not unwilling to get to know ourselves. That it's difficult may be true, but we're here because, quite obviously, we value it. Okay. Um, here's the, the mind that uh, I'm encouraging us to develop, and yet by taking up fear... And loneliness, I could contradict that, and I don't want to do it, but I did say I would talk about it. Uh, we're open to whatever turns up. It's not that fear is more important than, let's say, joy, or less important, or boredom, or just average, just ordinariness. In fact, one of the, if you stay with this method, you'll either learn to love the ordinariness of life. I mean, it's not a pejorative at all. Or you're going to try to find some other way to get spectacular results, special effects. And uh, sometimes you do get special effects in meditation practice, but that's not the point. The point is uh, to enter into union with, to become one with, to become intimate with your life at that moment. So whatever is there. The problems can be with unpleasant things and pleasant things wonderful things. You can enter into silence, exquisite silence, and this has happened to some of the people who are here. And if you really pay attention, you'll see that there's a little bit of tension in the mind. As it's in the silence, it's waiting for what's next. Sometimes the waiting is accompanied by, this is it, this is what the books talk about, it must be it. It's getting very close. Or at other times it's fear, but it's all imagination. You know, it's just, again, the mind's inability to be with what is. And it's a preference to uh, grasp at, to have expectations. And in the process, have subtle suffering. And in that moment, of course, the stillness has been compromised by our inability to just soak in it, to just soak in the stillness and let it work on us. So you have to learn that even with states like that. If fear comes, and I'm not suggesting you look for it, and if loneliness comes, and I'm not suggesting you look for it, because if you understand this choiceless awareness or open attention or free attention, whatever language you like, the whole point is to give up trying to do that and to just sit with your life as it is in this moment. Uh, having the faith and confidence that all the materials that you could ever need and want to practice in a fulfilling way are right there. Your life will not shortchange you. Maybe that takes faith for a while. It's not that you have to keep importing special, incredible techniques. I felt that in back of some of the requests, please work on fear, please work on loneliness, is maybe you think that I know something that you don't know uh, that will work some magic. But I'll tell you what I know, uh, the essence of it. I mean, there's so much, of course, that could be said about fear and loneliness. Let's start with fear. Much, if not all, of what I'm going to say applies to loneliness as, as well. Uh, fear is prevalent, right? We all have it. If you're human, you have fear. Some of us have it uh, more deeply developed than others. Some of uh, done some work with this. Some have not done so much work with it. But fear is a very um, powerful and, it's, and in its own way, if not dealt with and understood, destructive force. It has some positive qualities as well. It can be a piece of intelligence. Sometimes our fear is telling us something that we should be learn, but then that's it. It's usually the value is then over with as we keep dwelling on the on the fear, then it becomes something else. Uh, the challenge is something like this. 
okay, easy enough to be intimate with uh, nature as you take a walk in the woods. Uh, can you be intimate with fear? Uh, most of us are not interested in that. We don't want to go near it. We don't want to touch it. What we want to do is be done with it. The mind is in such a hurry. It's so desperate. If it knows it's afraid at all, some of it, it's, the fears are very deeply buried too. If we all are cognizant of the, of the way in which fear is um, distorting our life and limiting us, Perhaps we have a healthy yearning to be done with it. And then the question is, is it possible to wipe the mind clear of fear? Do you think it is? If you don't, you already have an expectation that's blocking you. If you've concluded that, oh, come on. Whatever the Buddha said, uh, that's real people. No, at least not this person. So you have to begin to examine uh, what you're approaching fear with. Because if you have certain attitudes, you're not even in a position to observe. Because you're afraid. You're afraid to observe fear. So that, how are you going to cut out of that? It's fear that's so damaging. And perhaps you hear that observation can help it. Or even free yourself of it. But then we're afraid to look at it. So, so much of our energy is, is caught up in solving the problem. In getting over it. And what we need is the energy not of getting rid of fear, but the energy of observing fear carefully in a sustained way and really learning about it. So if you can let go of, we're preoccupied with the goal again, uh, go to the phenomenon itself. Forget about all the benefits that may come from awareness. And instead, if you can, little by little, learn how to kind of sidle up to fear, little by little. And maybe the day comes where we swallow hard and maybe we hang on by a breath, literally. Anapanasati can help us there. As we breathe in and out, as we move uh, towards fear, as we allow the fear to be received, to examine it, the breath can be a kind of soothing friend. It's, it's almost as if it's holding your hand. Some people experience it that way. Okay. Can we let fear flower? Can we enter into communion with fear? I'm intentionally using very positive language. We don't want fear to flower. We want children to flower. We want our life to flower. We want our flowers to flower. Why would you want fear to flower? That's something you want to stamp out. Cut it out. Get rid of it. Destroy it. Annihilate it. You may want that, but that's what I meant. You, you probably won't like what I have to say. Uh, the practice is learning how to uh, permit what we call fear, which is an energy. And in the choiceless awareness, you're sitting there and suddenly there's fear. It's alive. It's not a static thing. It's energy. And can you be with it as it emerges? Can awareness move with it, in touch with it, clearly uh, going wherever it goes. Not the word fear, not all of your accumulated knowledge. Freud said about fear, Jung said about fear, the Buddha said about fear. That's all an escape from this point of view. The things we have to let go of in order to observe are our accumulated knowledge. That's not beginner's mind. That's I do know mind, not don't know mind. Convincing explanations. Or we have other more subtle defenses, courage. We don't get to know fear. We never really deal with it intimately, but we just establish a kind of tight, fierce, nothing pushes me around uh, through will. It doesn't work. It may work in the short run. You may even get a medal. But the fear is, has not been really dealt with. If you want to say goodbye to fear, you have to be polite. You have to say hello first. You have to let it up. You have to let it out. You have to patiently be right there with it and attend to it. It's part of you. It didn't come from Mars. It's coming out of your consciousness. And so entering into communion, being intimate with it, is when there's nothing separating you. The things that separate us are thoughts. Uh, we do things like we cope or we deny or we 
uh, get ab- absorbed in things that are other than fear. There's almost anything that we'd like to do rather than know it. And yet, the best medicine is really, in a sense, no medicine. It's uh, understanding that escape, there's no escape from fear. I would say part of the Buddha's message is there's no escape from suffering. There's an end to suffering, but there's no escape from it. The end comes through the full facing of it. Perhaps many of us here know that. That's why we're here. Because we've, hopefully, from my point of view, we've tried a lot of escapes and we see that it doesn't really work. I think it takes years. The average age of people on the retreat here is higher than, let's say, many workshops and other things that I see in Cambridge. Maybe it takes a while you know, to get punched around by life. And when you give up some of the... Uh, we all finally find out that some of the things we're so madly running after are perhaps uh, not the best way to spend our life or how we've been doing it, not, not the particular aspect of it. So can you see what's being called for? As you can uh, get closer to fear, as you can watch that energy move, if you can move with me, uh, as if right now we're both, all of us are intimate with the fear, that means you've left all of your presuppositions and escapes behind. You're not coping with it. You're not uh, courageous. uh, You're not trying to understand it. You're not comparing it with anything else. You have uh, the humility is this. Can you come to this energy, which we call fear, fear, with the humility of, I don't know anything about this. I'm approaching this uh, as an innocent person. I want to give it a chance. I really want to find out what fear is. And in order to do that, I have to drop all of my baggage. And I'm scared. And that fear is making it harder for me to approach. And maybe a little by little, I'll look at that. You may have to look at the aversion to looking. And then little by little, you start making your way. And if there's a a certain humility regarding your observation, uh, you're, you're getting warm. I mean, it's good in that way. And then you begin to uh, watch this energy and move with it. It's very alive. Um, If you can stay with it, and little by little you can learn to do it, one of the things you learn is that it arises and passes away and it lacks self. Does that sound familiar? That's uh, insight work at its best. You're beginning to see the true nature of fear, that fear is just fear. It's not my fear. It lacks an enduring core. It's what it is. It's something in nature. It's a phenomenon. It's a form. And little by little, as you see that, it takes a lot of the potency. It takes some of the sting out of it. And you begin to see that fear is just fear. That's all it's ever been. But we've had a reaction to it, just like we've had a reaction to the heat or to the cold, which then turns it into torment or misery. So now, it's no fun to be frightened or to have fear, but there it is, or here it is, right there here in our consciousness. As we learn to move with it and look into it and see it, we start to see what it is. It's much more like a cloud than we ever dreamed. If you can see that once or twice, uh, your relationship to it gets revolutionized. The fear is there, but there's no, little by little, there's no fear of fear. It's workable. You develop that confidence. Take loneliness. It's the same. Sorry, I don't have an easier remedy. Here, we're isolated. We feel isolated. And that's suffering. We feel cut off from, let's say, our fellow humans. All humans have some degree of loneliness. If you don't really look, uh, probably all of us, no matter what our circumstances, no matter how fortunate, uh, some have called it existential loneliness. There's something about being in this fragile human form that's aging and that's going to die. uh, And ways in which everything around us is subject to the same uncertainty. That at some level we know that this is, uh, whoa, 
what are we in here? Okay, we don't allow ourselves to be in touch with that too often. And often what we do is we build up barriers, perhaps because of fear. Fear and loneliness, it's not unusual for them to go together. We've gotten hurt. A lot of fear, when we look closely, not only do we see it as impermanent, but we begin to understand that fear comes out of thinking. It's the proliferations that Corrado was getting at last night. We have all these ideas or pictures about the future. A lot of fear is about tomorrow. Check it out with your own fears. Right now, everything's fine. You know, it's hot, but you're safe. Good food, nice friends, gentle, vegetarian. What more could you want? (laughs) Temporarily, at least. But the mind has freedom. It starts painting pictures about what's going to happen tomorrow and what happened yesterday may repeat itself tomorrow. And... uh, Okay, so we're caught in that, but with clear seeing, we can tell the difference. We can see that the fear seems to be growing out of the soil of thought. As through this practice, you get to know that thoughts are just thoughts, and the fear uh, is coming out of thought. That's all it is, and then you see it fall away. It's impermanent. Little by little, that whole world starts to disintegrate and is replaced by freedom. Remember, whenever we can fully attend to let's say something like fear. Fear has a tremendous amount of energy that's trapped in it, that's captured in it. When you make friends with fear, when you penetrate it, when it reveals itself to you uh, through intimate awareness, all of that energy that has been held in fear and of not much use to us is now liberated and available for constructive use. Ideally, to reinvest it back into the practice. Typically, though, what happens is the first breakthrough like that and we start a new meditation center. (laughs) I would say reinvest it in the practice and let someone else uh, be a superstar. I'm speaking from experience. (laughs) Anyway. Um, When we get to loneliness, in principle, it's not different. We want intimacy. We want to feel close to someone. Somehow in this modern world, it seems to be uh, almost an epidemic of people feeling uh, cut off. It has nothing to do with how many people are in our life. And however we've built up that sense of isolation, typically through fear, through creating barriers, which we think will keep us safe, but it turns out that what we think will keep us safe also isolates us. So the challenge of practice is if you want to be intimate with another person, uh, it seems to me that one very important high priority is can you become intimate with loneliness? Don't be in a hurry to be intimate with a person. Start off with that which is the problem. See, again, we want the solution. We're so in a hurry to get to the solution. And we don't want to touch loneliness. We want to be done with it because it's very painful. It's unpleasant. Mainly because we're fighting it. And so it's my loneliness, my fear. This is happening to me. Self-pity and so forth. The practice Loneliness, just like fear, is an energy. If we can throw away the, the word for the moment, the next time you feel lonely, forget about all the accumulated knowledge you have about loneliness. Just the isness of it. That which enables you to use that word lonely. Feel that. That's the practice. Don't be in a hurry to be done with it so you can be intimate. It doesn't work that way. Step number one is you have to become, you have to enter into fully with loneliness. And as you enter into loneliness, enter into communion with it, you get to know it as a real event in life again. It's a real energy. It exists. It's palpable. It's also workable. I wish there were a shortcut. I wish there were an easier way to do it. Uh, Visualize yourself as this happy, loving, intimate person. That won't hurt. 
but uh, there's no foundation to it. Do you think the, the whatever it was that helped create the loneliness thing that goes away when we superimpose on top of it these very constructive images? Do both. If you want to visualize yourself as a smiling, happy person in love and, you know, whatever it is you feel you don't have right now. I'm not saying that's a waste of time. Do that. But if you don't look at uh, and uproot uh, the fear and the loneliness, uh, I don't have a whole lot of confidence of what will come out of that. Some of the problem in social life is that we're all in this together so that each one of us is isolating ourselves and feeling isolated and then we want intimacy and so does the other person that we meet at a party, at a dance, at a bar, or wherever it is, mixer. And how can two people, neither of which are fully in touch with themselves, be intimate with each other? It just doesn't make any sense. There's got to be some beginning work on self-understanding, ideally on the part of both parties. It's not that you have to be perfect, but uh, then you have some ground, some, some possibilities. Let me leave you with a... Oh. An image. I've been using positive images like flowering, uh, enter into communion with fear or loneliness. In other words, let it, let that energy be and then uh, be sensitive to it, experience it. Uh, because there's power in that if you understand that uh, this is a something that you'd be doing on your own behalf. It's a step towards sanity. Uh, many, many years ago, I was part of a discussion group. There were 10 of us with uh, Krishnamurti. Some of you may not have heard of him, an Indian teacher. And what he would do is he would take a week and be with sometimes about 10 people, 8 people, 12 people. And he'd take a subject. And you'd meet for a few hours in the morning and a few hours in the afternoon every day for about five days. And the subject was uh, aggression and fear. And he was relating the two. Towards the end, the last two or three days, we were uh, pretty much entirely working with fear. And then there were just about half an hour, 20 minutes left. And a whole week of these dialogues and exchanges was coming to an end. Everyone would get on a different plane and go somewhere else. And we were sitting around this table, and Krishnamurti was bringing the week's work to a close, but we th in a rather strange way. Uh, he's talking about fear, and then suddenly he stops talking about fear. And he starts, he says, you know, the other day, this is in New York City, um, some friends took me to a, a, a rather exclusive uh, uh, jeweler, and they let me hold in my hands one of the world's most valuable and exquisite diamonds. And so he puts his hands, those who are in the back, up in front of him as if he has a diamond. And he said, so I held this uh, magnificent work of nature and I looked into it. I was totally one-pointed with it, you know, what we've been talking about. He said, uh, soon I became completely at one with this gem, this diamond. And then I went into it and through it and came he used the word something like the great benediction or bliss. And then he quickly, and this was the uh, extraordinary teaching, he quickly, with one hand, took the diamond away and he said, fear is that diamond. He replaced it with fear. In other words, if you could look at fear the way he was looking at this beautiful diamond, uh, it's not bad news. That is, there's... the. Uh, the fear takes us when examined and thoroughly understood. It takes us to peace. Okay, the main thing is the principle. Uh, each of us has to work it out for ourselves. There's no, it's not like assembling a vacuum cleaner or a car. Uh, it's much more artful than that. Each of us has to personally encounter ourselves. That's what self-knowledge is about. That's the heart of Vipassana. When you're really yourself, Actually, Suzuki Roshi says, uh, when you're really you, Zen is really Zen. It's the same in Vipassana. 
the practice is not for you to become like the Buddha or imitate anyone. It's, this practice is to help us to become ourselves. And uh, that's it. <laughs> okay. Okay, a short walking period, probably to the tea urn. Can we have a moment's silence? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.